I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. The rise of American empire has been a topic of historical research for decades, and it has opened up a rich vein of analysis for historians, whose literature on American foreign relations and empire shows us the connections made through trade and commerce, through culture, through ideas, politics, power, security, development, and the geography of empire, its borders, or the lack of borders, has allowed us to see the United States less in terms of a nation, less exceptional, less central, and more part of a world system. The geography of empire might be seen as territorial, like in terms of colonies, or in terms of archipelagos that act as stepping stones from one strategic market to another. The seas and the oceans, they have their own geography, as do the stories of those who traversed the cold, malicious waters, as Herman Melville once called it in Moby Dick. And I couldn't help think about Melville's great novel, Moby Dick, when reading Dr. William Riddell's book, On the Waves of Empire, U.S. Imperialism and Merchant Sailors, 1872-1924. Although Melville came first, writing Moby Dick in 1851, the stories about sailors in the book shows the diversity aboard a 19th century vessel. From Ishmael, the narrator and the survivor, to Queequeg, Starbuck, Ahab, and even the macro purpose of the Pequod is important, to kill whales for their oil. And of course, that seems to mirror nicely with the famous dictum by John Quincy Adams that the United States should not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. That has a certain metaphoric parallel to Moby Dick. It resonates in the expansion of the United States. And I know this rambling is a little bit off topic, but it does have a point. The empire of the seven seas has received less treatment than the empire of the seven continents, and the sailors of those seas have received even less treatment as agents of empire. That changes with Dr. Will Riddell's book. This book sort of writes the ship. All right, I know that was a terrible pun. I'm sorry. But I am delighted to have Will on the show. He's assistant professor of history at the University of Toronto's Department of Historical and Cultural Studies. His research areas include post-Civil War to mid-20th century U.S. history. He works on labor and working class history, capitalism, and of course, the history of empire. I'm delighted to have him on the show. Welcome, Will. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I wanted to start the conversation with where your book starts. So it's kind of like the beginning of a joke. Four sailors walk off a ship in 1895. (laughs) Um, But in your story, they're arrested. They're convicted of desertion. It's um, It's not the military, though. This is their job. And the Supreme Court upholds the conviction. Some call this, and, and you refer to it in the book, as the second Dred Scott case because it denies them constitutional rights. And I was just wondering if you could tell us how this incident helps us understand American empire and the changing nature of American power in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I mean, the way I kind of started is four sailors walk off a ship. Is It's just the idea of the simplicity of a kind of very simple act of resistance, right? Just the act of quitting your job, which is something that most people take for granted, um, particularly now, but even at the time um, in, in that part of the United States. Now, obviously in other parts of the United States, like the American South, um, that is also not the case, which is where some of this connection uh, comes in. So why this case is so important is because it really gets at that difference between what is the nation and what is the empire, 
where that line is and why it matters. Um, so in this particular case, in some ways, this was sort of a test case by the Sailors Union. They sort of knew what they were doing uh, when they did this, uh, kind of like with Rosa Parks. I mean, she knew what she was doing when she did it. It wasn't just, oh, random. Um, and so they're testing a particular law, which is called the McGuire Act, which is mentioned at the beginning of the book. And the McGuire Act was supposed to ban this kind of um, uh, practice, but in the domestic trade, right? So in the foreign trade, trade between the United States and, and foreign countries, and we can get into later what specifically that means, because it's not necessarily as clear cut as, as you might think. And so they're testing this law. Um, and so they desert their ship. And then of course, as it says in the book, they are eventually hunted down by uh, local authorities, state of Oregon and sort of the local constabulary, if you will, put back on the ship, eventually taken back to San Francisco and essentially thrown in jail for desertion, uh, which was something that could be criminally punished. Um, if you quit your jobs in the merchant marine, as you said, it's, it's not the military. Um, and they think that this is entirely legal. The problem that the Supreme Court kind of gets to is that because the ultimate destination of the ship was somewhere foreign, in this case, uh, port in Chile, it's defined as operating in the foreign trade rather than the domestic trade. And because it's defined as operating in the foreign trade, the Supreme Court says, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution does not actually apply. And then, of course, they take a more general stance on it, saying, well, the problem with maritime labor is that it's always been a, quote, exceptional class of labor. I um, mean, this causes sort of a, a major um, scare on the part of the Sailors Union, which you eventually see in the, uh, the uh, annexation debate in 1898, that what if the Supreme Court can declare other forms of labor exceptional? Right, And then therefore the constitution does not necessarily apply to it. And this is sort of what the concern is. And part of why this case is so important is all of the issues that come up in the post 1898 debate over you know, whether the United States can have an empire, does the constitution follow the flag? This is already happening uh, in the sailors, or sorry, in the uh, shipping industry in the 1880s and the eight, early 1890s. Yeah, well, and I, I love that as the starting point too, because it takes us before the insular cases but the insular cases for anyone that's listening and doesn't already know, although I suspect a lot of listeners already know, is when Justice White famously called the American territories domestic in a foreign sense and ruled largely in a number of trade disputes and uh, that, that regard the time when a territory becomes part of the United States or not, um, that, that basically the, these places are at once foreign and also domestic. And that is incredibly confusing. Uh, they're bordered and they're borderless, I guess. But how does this affect, how does this idea of domestic in a foreign sense affect not just seafaring laborers, but also the landlubbers who work? Right. So, I mean, what's interesting about the insular cases, of course, is that's kind of, as you said, held up as these were the cases, this is how the United States worked out its relationship with these colonies or whether or not they could even have colonies legally under the constitution. And part of what I'm arguing in the book is that, yes, I mean, that's all true, certainly. I, mean, I don't think it contradicts any of that. But the question I'm looking at is that it's also a labor question. Um, the insular cases are not entirely separate from labor, but they mostly uh, revolve around commodity trades. I think the initial one was um, a sugar importer in New York City was challenging whether or not you could charge tariffs on sugar imported from Puerto Rico. And so in this particular case, what we're seeing is that the question of what is foreign, what is domestic, and then eventually what is the nation and what is empire is actually a labor question. And it determines um, something as profound as whether or not workers actually work under the protection of the 13th Amendment. And so the idea is that if sailors in the foreign trade are not under the 13th Amendment, does that mean workers in Hawaii are protected by the 13th Amendment or workers in the Philippines or it's sort of outside the scope like Cuba or Puerto Rico? Um, and it gets at this idea of unincorporation. In a way, what the sailors are arguing is that before we even get to this idea of whether the Constitution follows the flag, the Argo case suggests that the Constitution can follow the flag, and it almost doesn't matter. Um, as long as the Supreme Court declares the labor situation exceptional, it really doesn't matter uh, whether the court says it's part of the United States or not. They can declare exceptional um, sort of classes of labor, which causes the sailors' union, I mean, I, I mentioned this in chapter one, um, well, what if the Supreme Court decides that other labor systems are exceptional? 
Um, the obvious example being, you know, the labor system in the American South, eventually the contract labor system in Hawaii. But their fear is what if these systems can leak into the nation? And they see it as threatening the kind of free soil status uh, of the broader West Coast and really the, the nation as a whole. Uh, which is why often the case is referred to by the sailors as the second Dred Scott decision, um, because it was this idea that these unfree labor practices from, in this case, the empire could leak into the, uh, the nation. And part of what the book is saying is this is already happening in this, with the sailors. And, and it's a kind of microcosm of what's happening um, in, a, in a sort of large scale political sense. So, Will, you've got to forgive me. I wrote down questions that we're going to run through the book in a somewhat chronological order, not chronological, but based on the the chronology that you set up in the book, but I'm just captivated by this idea that the exceptional nature of these rulings or the, the sort of nature of the rulings is that the Supreme Court can kind of make it up as they go along. I think the, the case, the Delima v. Bidwill case and the Insular cases was actually called by one of the justices a third way, but it, yeah. was, it was completely arbitrary. And I think recently uh, Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court justice has said that this is, it's unfeasible, it's unworkable, as a as a as a precedent that the insular cases don't make any sense today, and yet today we have labor relations and the Supreme Court ruling on cases that are basically stripping away the rights of unions and workers in like you know record pace. I mean, what if you can just give us? And this is a little unfair because your book doesn't do this, but if you can give us a little like potted history from well 1895 to 2000 and let's say 20ish. You know, what's what's happened along that continuum that we have Neil Gorsuch citing the insular cases and that, you know, and that basically that, that, that there's a there's a disconnect between today and the past. Well, I think what's interesting in the case of the insular cases is that a lot of the issues that the insular cases brings up and the way I'm thinking about it in the book from the perspective of labor rather than trade is you almost don't need the insular cases. I mean, in, in if you look at the way that we're separating nation and empire. Um, what's interesting, of course, about the shipping industry is that it's kind of predictive of where broader industry is going, right? I mean, it's the first industry by virtue of what it is. It's a mobile platform that has access to a global labor market. And as a result of that, they can do 100 years ago what corporations have been doing since the 1970s um, with the turn toward neoliberalism. Um, that instead of bringing workers to the sites of American industry, American industry goes to other places. Uh, so that line between what is what is sort of the imperial and what is the nation 100 years ago is still relevant today. Um, so even if the Supreme Court decides that certain areas or classes of labor or labor systems within the United States is exceptional and therefore not um, protected under the Constitution, I mean, just with, with the way that uh, transnational capital and industrial capital operates uh, sort of internationally, they could just go around it anyway. Um, and that kind of gets around it. And that's kind of what was so significant about the shipping industry is it's, it was somewhat impervious to regulation uh, 100 years ago, which is why the sailors are always sort of, um, they sort of make one gain and then they lose it. And they make a gain and then they lose it, um, so to speak. I think that gets us right to the, the nub of what we need to get to, which is, as you say, probably less the Supreme Court rulings because of the nature of the rulings and more to what the trade unions represent. And what is it back in the late 19th century that they want and they're asking for? Well, in the most basic sense, the way Andrew Furseth, who was head of the, the union, basically the International uh, Siemens Union of America, and he, he was only the secretary of the Sailors Union of the Pacific, but he basically ran it. Um, he had sort of tremendous power over the union, really up until the end of the First World War. He would have said, all we want is the same rights as workers on land, right? And that gets at sort of the crux of the Argo case. Uh, the fact that you have these asymmetric contracts where if you're working for the shipping company, they can fire you at any time, um, but you are not legally allowed to quit your job. Um, you can be thrown in jail, or even if they're not going to throw you in jail and put you back on the ship, you'll lose all your money because your wages are paid out at the end of your contract. So there's sort of fi financial coercive methods as well. And so that's what he would say is we just want the same rights as on land. Um, it, it kind of gets at after the Civil War, the kind of triumph of you know free wage labor. Um, and even though the shipping industry was a pioneer of wage labor, say in the 18th century, Mark, Mark, Marcus Rediger talks about this, um, by the late 19th century, it's somewhat out of step of uh, sort of the prevailing norms of labor within the United States, at least the prevailing norms for white workers in the United States. And that's essentially what they want. But the one of the things that's key for them is that when they talk about 
um, having the same rights as workers on land. Like, yes, they're talking about labor rights, they're talking about the right to quit their job, but they're also talking about the protection of, say, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and that's one of the key things uh, as, as the book progresses that they want is they want the Chinese Exclusion Act applied to the deck of an American flagged ship because they see one of the privileges of working within the quote unquote nation or the domestic realm of the United States is protection from racial others in terms of job competition, which of course is connected to what happens in California from you know the 1850s onward. Absolutely. And I do want to get to the, the question of race because I want to tie it back into another book in this book series from Illinois and a podcast that I know you listened to with Lorenzo Costaguda uh, about the Socialist Labor Party. But, I, but before we get there, I just want to kind of like flesh out a little bit more about the trade that these unions are in that, I guess, is, it, is there an argument being made by the employers that there's something unique about maritime trade and commerce that is different from, you know, the, the sort of, uh, I suppose, on land, commerce that would take place across continents, say? Is there something unique that makes it so that they need to be more restrictive on laborers? And I mean, any business person would probably say that because it suits the bottom line, but do they have any basis in reality and fact that makes this different somehow? Well, yeah, I mean, what makes them unique, and again, sort of Marcus Redeker pioneered this um, on his books in, in, that he wrote in the 1980s, but specifically on the 18th century, but he gets at this perpetual problem that exists for the shipping industry, which is on the one hand, and especially after the 1880s in the United States, they have access to a global labor market, but their workers also have access to a global labor market. Meaning that if you are hired, say in Liverpool, if you're a British sailor, and then you go to New York City, well, the wages in the United States are much higher than the wages in Europe, and certainly much higher than the wages in East Asia. So it's one of the few industries that is delivering their workers potentially to higher wage labor markets. So the problem has always been the autonomous mobility of their workforce. And so if you look at the way that the shipping industry is regulated, the way that the shipping industry's labor regime works, a lot of it is to restrict the autonomous movement of their workers, precisely because they're delivering them to other labor markets. Um, whereas, of course, if you're a worker within the United States, yeah, theoretically, you could move anywhere. But of course, the financial constraints make that largely impossible. And as we know, a lot of immigrants that came to the United States in this particular period, even though it wasn't technically legal, were often brought by uh, labor padrones. I mean, Gunther Peck talks about this in, in the American West. Um, so that's kind of the key problem. So that's sort of the problem, the way I see it, is that they're being delivered to these different labor markets and pre presented with potentially better opportunities. And that has to be controlled, which is why you have these laws like, say, um, I think they call it the Fugitive Slave Law of the Sea, which is passed in 1790. Um, it's what the sailors call it, just the Maritime Law of, of 1790. The Shipping Commissioners Act of 1872 also um, basically uh, sanctifies the, uh, the state's ability to actually arrest uh, deserters um, from ships. Now, the other sort of less charitable way that the shipping company executives look at it, because they're, they're not saying, obviously, well, we have to restrict the autonomous movement of our workers, because they know that's not going to fly. But they basically essentialize them in the way that all sort of, you know, large businesses, capitalists of the time, essentialize their workforce, um, almost to the point of racialization, but not quite, obviously. And so they see sailors in that kind of stereotypical mold of your kind of drunken sailors, that they won't work properly. It has to be coercive. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's stuff that even the unions themselves bought into. Uh, the fact that it does require a more rigid disciplinary structure than, say, working in a factory in California. Um, Andrew Furseth himself would have argued that that the sort of disciplinary structure was actually good. He just was against, say, corporal punishment or, you know, being imprisoned for quitting your job. But the actual idea of discipline on a ship, because in his words, if you make a mistake, people could die um, at sea. So even though it's not the military, it's still very much run in a kind of hierarchically rigid way like the military, which obviously the shipping company um, executives are for, but even some of the union leadership, and this becomes a problem with them and their rank and file by the end of the First World War, even buy into that a little bit, um, partly because they're very proud of the trade that they work in, um, that they work in this kind of very unique um, sort of laboring environment. Sure, and they recognize the uniqueness of it as well. I get that. I mean, I just want to uh, unpack that a little bit because Andrew Farusif is really, he gets considerable co coverage in the book. And I think he tells us a lot about what the unions are, are vying for in this period. Are there 
differences between him and others? I mean, you mentioned, for example, the Chinese Exclusion Act. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to Lorenzo Castaguda about the issue of race in uh, American, the American labor movement and trade unions. And there was real, real division within the trade unions about, well, first of all, the idea of race, but then also exclusion by race and how that should take take part in the United States. And so how how do the the maritime unions or the sailors unions, how do they see race? Where are their their fissures and, and differences? Well, what's interesting in this case is uh, the Sailors Union of the Pacific, for most of the history, at least from the period that we're covering, the 1880s, really into the 1920s, are the driving force behind uh, the Sailors Union. Even though whenever the East Coast gets organized, it's much larger in numbers, the Sailors Union of the Pacific, I think at most, it might hit, during the war, I think it hits about 10, 15,000, um, but really it's about 3,000. Um, before and after the war. So it's a smaller branch, but it's arguably the most important because they control the say, the Siemens Journal, right? The, uh, the Co-Siemens Journal from basically the 1880s to the 1920s. Andrew Ferusif comes from uh, the Pacific. He's the president. Uh, Paul Scharenberg and Walter MacArthur, also from the Pacific, are the editors of the Labor Journal, which um, I think uh, Bruce Nelson at one point said it was one of the most influential labor journals west of the Mississippi. So incredibly influential. Um, and their encounter with race is very much a kind of West Coast Pacific phenomenon, a little bit different than the East Coast. And this is where some of the tensions come in, um, that part of it is the sailors. And then part of it also is regional in the way that race in the, in the United States is regional at this time, uh, which is that if you look at the makeup of the Sailors Union of the Pacific, most of them are either um, native born Americans, right? Um, but by the late 19th and early 20th century, the vast majority of sailors are not American citizens. They're either recent immigrants or people hired in other ports. Um, and so what happens is the way that the Sailors Union of the Pacific thinks about race, because it's dominated by Northern Europeans, particularly Germans and Scandinavians. I mean, Andrew Furseth himself comes from Norway. Um, Walter MacArthur comes from Scotland. Scherenberg is from uh, Germany. Is it's very much um, a kind of sort of Northern European idea of what race is. So their definition of whiteness starts out being quite limited. Uh, now, when you move to the West Coast, it becomes, or sorry, the East Coast, it becomes a little bit more complicated in the sense that the kind of ethnic fissures that exist in the East Coast is where sort of the line of race goes. It, it's similar to Linda Gordon's um, conception of it in her book, uh, The Great, was it the Great Arizona Orphanage? Um, uh, kidnapping, right? She has this great line where there's all these sort of uh, Irish uh, children who are orphans in New York City, and they're traveling on the train out to Arizona. And of course, they're Catholic, right? Because there's a Catholic Irish orphanage in, in uh, New York City. And you can imagine in Arizona, in the early 20th century, who are likely to be the Catholics, people of Mexican descent. So she has this great line where she says, somewhere between New York City and Arizona, these Irish children went from being questionably white to being white. Um, and when they get to Arizona, the quote unquote Anglos that live in the area, which of course in the West Coast means anybody that's not Hispanic, um, they're just outraged that these white children are going to be adopted by Mexican families. But in the East Coast, their whiteness wasn't firmly established yet. So a lot of the policies that are adopted by the Sailors Union of the Pacific, even though they're coming at it from a class-based position, is often organized around whiteness, uh, largely because of the specific encounter in California. But when they try to organize workers on the East Coast, that idea of whiteness becomes a lot more complicated, um, in large part because some of their membership are from Latin America. And so how do they fit in? Um, to this conception of whiteness, which on the West Coast is sort of very different. So the West Coast doesn't look like your kind of Melvillian, motley crude vessels uh, that the East looks like. It's a very sort of homogenous um, uh, sort of uh, union, which is what's informing their, uh, their thinking on race. And again, because of their encounters with the, the racial others that they see, and part of their sort of big campaign is to try to stop the employment of Chinese sailors um, on ships. But as, as you see when you get to chapter three, a lot of the sort of instruments they use to create Chinese exclusion, they sort of work on the West Coast, but they don't work on the East Coast because the principal way that they're doing this is through what's called a language clause uh, that the um, basically just says that 75% of their, the uh, crew has to understand the language of the officers. And in the East Coast, a lot of the Spanish speakers don't understand the language of the officers, or at least that's the argument. So it becomes very complicated. 
um, organizing around whiteness and sort of the English language in California works, but in the East Coast, it becomes very problematic. Fascinating. The geography of it is is remarkable. We've heard from, uh, I've heard from a good few scholars about this when they're writing up their work about laborers, understanding it in their specific geographical context. But there's a temporal context here. You know, your book moves from the 1870s all the way into the 1920s when we know that quota systems are going to be in place. How do the racial dynamics within the Sailors Union, how do do they change, not just geographically, but over time? I mean, when we get into the 1920s, what does the conception and the idea of race look like and how does it factor into decisions that the unions are making? Well, I mean, I mean, the, the, if, if we look at it from a macro sense, obviously, we know that in the late 19th century, the, the idea of what race means is, is, I mean, it's always in flux, but in particular, in the late 19th century, as we know, race can also mean ethnicity. Um, and I think, you know, May Nye talks about this, Matthew Pratt Girdle talks about this, when you get to the 1920s, race becomes more associated with quote, unquote, color, um, and the idea that you even sort of you know, through legislation in the U.S. Supreme Court, the idea of a, quote, Asian race actually gets created um, to a certain extent in the United States. And so when we get to uh, the 1920s, in a way, the way the sailors are thinking about race in the 1890s is not entirely confirmed in the 1920s because they still would have seen a hierarchy within Europe itself. They certainly thought of themselves as above, say, people from the Mediterranean. And there's even a point where Andrew Ferusif is happy that all the Italians leave the Sailors Union in the East Coast um, uh, in, in the 19-teens, that he sees them as not that different than, um, say, um, Mexicans, Hispanics, um, not, not exactly like Indigenous people or Chinese on the West Coast, but he certainly doesn't see them as equal. Uh, so in a way, this idea of what race becomes in the United States is often formed uh, in the West Coast, largely with the encounter with the Pacific. So it's not so much that it changes, but it does mirror that larger kind of macro move toward um, dividing the world up, like you said, in the quota system of, say, this is Asia, these people are Asians, these people are not um, you know, more specifically how the, uh, the Bard Zone Act works, right? And how essentially they're dividing up the world into these people could become Americans and these people can't become Americans. And in, in a lot of ways, that's how the Sailors Union thinks about it. And one of the things they do in the 1920s um, is they actually rewrite the Constitution to say that the union can only accept members who are eligible for U.S. citizenship. So even though technically that they could, um, they don't do it. It's like with a lot of things. I mean, the, the AFL is officially race blind, but we know, of course, that they're perfectly fine with segregated locals in the American South and for the most part are pretty much only organizing skilled white workers um, at this particular period. So in a way, FIRSA adapts the constitution and laws of the uh, Sailors Union of the Pacific and the ISU to mirror Um, the way that sort of the uh, larger nation uh, legally is thinking about how to define race. And how does labor in the settler colonial uh, places, you know, the the American empire where um, uh, white Americans have decided to settle there, differ from labor in overseas imperial territories that they have no intention of immigrating to places, maybe say like the Philippines. Is there a difference between you know, the, the, the labor the, the labor of sailors in those different ports? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and this gets at sort of the larger question of where does the nation end and the empire begin and, and, and why that matters. And, and what's interesting about looking at the Sailors Union of the Pacific is, is precisely because they're in a very recent settler colonial context. Um, so what's interesting is when you look at the way they think about empire and imperialism, I mean, part of the argument of the book is that sailors are kind of the key voices, particularly white sailors are the key voices in figuring out, well, what does imperialism mean? to the white working classes? Or what does it mean to the, rep- the, you know, the self-appointed representatives of the white working classes? What does it mean to somebody like Samuel Gompers? Now Gompers himself, of course, would say he's an anti-imperialist. He's a member of the Anti-Imperialist League, just like uh, Mark Twain. Um, even members of the Sailors Who Knew the Pacific will condemn uh, imperialism. But one of the arguments I make is that they're not really against imperialism. They're against a specific type of imperialism. Um, in this case, as you alluded to, they're against colonial imperialism. But what's interesting is the reasons they're against it. So, you know, this sort of standard conception of organized labor at the time was that they took this principled stand against imperialism. And I'm sure that was true for a lot of them. I mean, I'm sure if you ask Gompers, he would say, oh, this is bad. And, you know, we can't be an empire and we shouldn't rule over people. And you do have quotes of him saying this over and over again, particularly with the Philippines. But if you dig a little deeper into the reason why 
they're against imperialism. It, it's almost kind of like that Joseph Conrad anti-imperialism where, yeah, he's against imperialism, but he's more so against it for what it does to the colonizers rather than what it does to the colonized. And, you know, Gompers himself says, um, I think I can, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says the problem with the Philippines is that essentially they can't replace the Filipinos with white American settlers um, for two reasons. One, there's too many, these 8 million people, and two, the climate. I mean, of course, I mean, one of the, the fascinating parts of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era is the way that race science emerges and how it's tied to climate. And the Sailors Union of the Pacific, Andrew Fursip believes this as well, um, which I think is in chapter one, that this idea that, well, white workers can't labor in Hawaii, they can't labor in the Philippines. And that's the reason why these colonies can't be part of the United States, not just because colonialism is wrong, although they would probably also say that too, but because they can't actually move there. Um, there's no potential for, as you said, settler colonialism in, in this particular um, part of the world based on you know, the fact that there's too many people there and the fact that they buy into this sort of climatic idea of race. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Just this is a, a question that I was just curious about from the perspective of the trade unionists. Do they, do they make racial claims on the, um, the skills of, of, of sailors? Do they say that, like, for example, you know, you mentioned the Irish earlier, the Irish are really good sailors. I think I can remember a few books about um, uh, maritime wars where people said the Irish are really good sailors or, you know, the Filipinos are really good sailors. Do the trade unionists do this as well? And is it is it strictly along those sort of, you know, those race lines, the color lines, really? Or or is it or is it somewhat more nuanced? Um, it's a little bit of both. Like it, it certainly is more nuanced, but often it does fall on the uh, the as you pointed out, so-called color lines. I mean, certainly in the British case, it's a little bit different because so many of the sailors would have been Irish or at least northern uh, from, say, Manchester, Liverpool. I mean, obviously you get a lot of Irish immigrants to uh, Manchester and Liverpool in that in that particular time period. But again, this is what's interesting about the West Coast and why it's sort of unique in this respect and why it, it's sort of steeped um, in empire, whether they sort of like it or not which is that the way that they think about skill, I mean, of course, David Rodiger and W.E.B. Du Bois talked about this 100 years ago and Rodiger in, in 1990, 1991, with the way that skill is defined um, in terms of race. Uh, a lot of the skill standards that are created um, under the La Follette Act or the Siemens Act of 1915, which they see as this kind of um, sort of emancipatory law to kind of free all the sailors of the world, which on the one hand it does, but it's also grafted onto a very specific regime of race. And so the way that they think about race in terms of skill is that 
Chinese workers, right? And again, this is their argument for trying to apply the Chinese Exclusion Act to, um, to ships. I mean, we know why they want to do it, but they have to sell it uh, to the rest of the country. They have to sell it to members of Congress and the Senate and, of course, President Wilson in, in 1915. And their argument is that, well, Chinese sailors are just inherently unskilled. And it gets into a lot of these tropes of the way that Western society, particularly in the United States and Europe, constructed the image of Chinese people and particularly Chinese workers, that they were inherently servile, that they couldn't possibly form labor unions because of this inherent servility, and also just their ability to crew a sailing ship. Now, the tension here is that part of the reason um, shipping company executives and you know, shipping firms are turning to Chinese labor on the West Coast is also their assumptions of the skill set of sort of the racial skill set of Chinese laborers, which is that when you shift from, say, sailing ships to steamships, the shipping company executives argue that, well, skill no longer matters. And if skill no longer matters, we don't need skilled white sailors. We can get people from anywhere. And so both of them buy into, in a way, the same kind of racial essentialism about Chinese workers. And when you hear Ferusif talk about it, they'll say things like they're either stupefied with opium. Um, he he's basically makes these claims that the shipping companies are providing opium to the Chinese crews to make them docile, you know, so they won't form unions and that kind of thing. Um, he's also often arguing that they often panic. Um, he will point to all these different examples of ships that sank and he'll say, well, it was because the Chinese crew panicked and nobody knew what to do. Um, but then it's also contradictory because then he also sees them as sort of machine-like. Like, yeah, at one point he even argues that Chinese sailors are not workers, but they're actually machines part of the production process. So it's this weird contradiction between they're either too emotional or they have no humanity whatsoever. Um, and that's kind of how it's constructed on both sides of shipping capital and labor, but for very different reasons. Um, and of course, this gets at the larger tension of the industrialization and de-skilling of, um, of trades in this particular era as well. I mean, I could dwell on this for ages. I, mean, I think the intersection between empire and race, and also the idea of sailors going to these ports and not only getting a sense of race, but getting a sense of the nation that other people live in and the, either the success or the, the lack thereof that they perceive in those places. I think it really colors the way the unions operate as well. But I wanna, I wanna break away from race because like I said, we could we spent a lot of time getting into this. It's got really, it's got, it's got legs we could run. Um, I wanna just turn to peonage really quickly because peonage gets abolished for African-Americans and largely for everyone in the United States in 1906 in a series of court cases. Um, but it doesn't come to an end for, for sailors, right? Why, why is it the peonage is still allowed after 1906, still for sailors? It's partly because of that um, Argo case, right? The fact that it's, it can be seen as an exceptional class of labor. And this then also gets at um, that difference between nation and empire. Uh, they basically are able to ban it in the domestic trade. And this is a lot of what I argue the struggle over um, the sort of um, workers' rights within the shipping industry is, even though race is all over it as well. It's about where the nation is and where the empire is. And shipping company executives would very much like the line between nation and empire to be drawn at the water's edge of the continental United States. That once you step onto a ship that's bound for anywhere else in the world that's not the United States, you're basically stepping into an, an imperial labor market, right? The sailors would like the opposite. They would like the American flagged ships to essentially operate under a domestic labor regime so that it would exist in a kind of domestic context rather than an imperial context. And so part of it, part of what the Supreme Court is getting at beyond kind of just affirming the exceptionality of maritime labor is that, and they say this in 1917, this is a Supreme Court case that says the deck of an American flagged ship is actually not the United States, even though it's owned by the United States. They also say in 1917 that maritime workers are not laborers. Um, so again, it's get it's kind of reaffirming this exceptionality, um, and that also gets into a little bit what we were talking about with the uh, with the insular cases, which is the fact that because the line between nation and empire is so important to how the labor regime operates, most of this struggle between shipping company executives and workers is about where that line is. And if it's pushed farther, then you can have the ship operate like 
anything that exists in California, particularly for white workers. But if it's not, then it operates more in the imperial realm, more like a labor regime in the Philippines or, or Hawaii, or you can even argue the American South, which of course complicates the entire thing, um, or what's going on in Cuba after 1898. So that's what a lot of this struggle is, is that even though, say, something like debt peonage is ended in 1906, 1907, legally speaking, if it's happening outside the boundaries of the nation in the empire, well, it doesn't necessarily apply. Um, so they're successful in ending it in the domestic trade. And, and the domestic trade does expand. The way that they define the domestic trade, I think by the late 1890s is Canada is part of the domestic trade. The Caribbean is part of the domestic trade. Mexico is part of the domestic trade, but everything else is foreign. Um, so as long as you're laboring within those roots, then you have most of the protections that you would have in the United States. And one of those things is to not be subjected to debt peonage. But in a foreign sense, you're not protected. Now, the argument that shipping company executives would make is that they need it because on the one hand, in a cynical way, what we were talking about, about the autonomous movement of workers, well, they don't want their workers to desert in a foreign port, right? But on the other hand, um, they argue that if they don't have it, and again, it gets at the way they essentialize sailors as well, which is interesting. And, you know, I mean, we're not we're kind of getting back to race here, but in a different sense, is that I think it's one of the, um, I think it's Maxwell Everts who says, or it's Robert Dollar who says, if we abolish, um, say, what we're calling debt peonage, but it's really just with a withholding of wages until the end of their contract, his argument was that you'll never get sailors to work. They'll just desert everywhere and we'll never get them to work. It'll be impossible. Um, and that's part of what that is, is that, again, it creates the shipping industry as exceptional. It says in 1897, and then in 1917, there's a Supreme Court that basically affirms it and actually takes it further. I mean, look, to my years, contemporary years, you just think, well, pay us more, right? I mean, or, or, or take better care of us. And, and but somehow that didn't trickle down. I don't know why in 1906, I would have thought it would be any different. But look, let's take us to 1915. How does, how does Robert La Follette enter the story? How does the progressive movement, if not the progressive party, come to the aid of the sailors? So what's interesting here, and, and what's fascinating about the La Follette Act and Robert La Follette's role in getting it passed, I mean, him and Andrew Fursif become pretty close friends um, at this period. And, and that's kind of um, what's so fascinating about Farusif is he's, he's, he's this really interesting guy that not only controls the sailors union, but he befriends all these kind of very powerful people. Uh, I mean, when the La Follette Act is actually passed, there's this story that is probably apocryphal, but that, you know, it finally gets through Congress, finally through the Senate, it always died in the Senate, as often progressive legislation does. And then it passes. And then Wilson's not sure if he's going to sign it. And the way the story goes is that Andrew Fursif gets a meeting with Wilson. He goes into the Oval Office, drops to his knees and begs um, Wilson. And he, say, he says, I begs them to set us free. Right. It's very dramatic. And that was the thing with Fursif. He was also he was a very quiet guy that kept to himself, but he could be very dramatic um, when he's testifying. He was very articulate. He knew maritime law better than probably a lot of lawyers. Even shipping company executives would admit that I mean, his knowledge of maritime law was second to none. Um, so he is this widely respected figure. He is in Washington most of the time. I mean, from the 1890s onward, he's basically a white shirt um, union leader. Same with MacArthur and Scherenberg, mostly working in D.C. lobbying. And, and he's a very effective uh, lobbyist in a lot of ways. But when it comes to the La Follette Act, he gets La Follette to support it. Um, but what's interesting with this particular act is it really does reflect the contradictions at the heart of progressivism, that on the one hand, it is this piece of very progressive legislation, right? It's freeing, uh, theoretically, the world's sailors. It's creating safety standards. It's um, abolishing the criminal I mean, imprisonment for quitting your job. It's abolishing once and for all corporal punishment. But at the same time, as even La Follette says, I mean, the whole one of the whole points of the act is to drive Asian sailors from the trade. So on the one hand, it's progressive, but on the other hand, it's entirely racially exclusive in line with every sort of anti-Asian immigration law that's passed from 1882 to 1924. And, and they're quite open about this. I mean, La Follette himself is not above this. When we think of um, sort of La Follette, he's often, you know, he's able to rise above some of these things, but he himself is quoted as saying, you know, the point of this is to drive sailors from the trade. He talks about how shipping company executives has handed control of the world's oceans over to Asians. He's talking about Asians swarming the merchant marines of all the kind of imperial powers. So even La Follette himself is not above these racial essentialisms. And then even when he talks about the racialization of skill, he still is talking about the fact that, you know, he says that 
uh, in a letter to Furseth, or sorry, it's an article about Furseth after the passage of the act that a lot of Chinese crews were stupefied with opium. Um, I mean, he's falling into the same traps that Furseth is. And yet it is this sort of um, progressive legislation. I mean, I think uh, Marilyn Lake has a really good book came out a few years ago called Progressives in the New or Pro Progressive New World. And she says, yes, it's progressivism, but it's progressivism grafted on to a white settler colonial regime of race. And that's kind of what the La Follette Act is in a lot of ways. But um, beyond that, what it's doing, one of the things I argue, is that it's marshalling American economic power in the service of the sailors' unions. So the whole idea behind the act is that it would force other countries to conform to its standards. Um, and again, this gets at this idea that the sailors would like the American flagged ships to become a domestic labor space. And because it's very difficult to do that, because if you, let's say you pass a law in 1905 that does that, we well, can just flag your ship in England or France or anywhere. So what the La Follette Act does to get around that is the La Follette Act standards will apply to every ship regardless of, regardless of registry. So if you're a British ship or a French ship, as soon as that ship starts to the United States, theoretically, it would have to conform to the standards of the La Follette Act or it's not allowed to trade with the United States. And so what they're doing in a way is, um, you know, William Appleman Williams, of course, talked about this 50 years ago. It's not that different than, say, what uh, Secretary of State John Hay is doing with the open door notes in China, that he knows that the American preponderance of power in the global marketplace gives him a tremendous amount of coercive power. Um, and Furseth, in a lot of ways, is riding those economic waves of empire to force the global shipping industry to conform to how he sees uh, labor relations. And some of it is good, and some of it also is racially exclusive. Okay, the empire, the author who called it a crucible of empire, I think that's a really good term as well, sort of the conformity and the standard setting. And it's not just in sailing, that is a theme throughout the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, setting Absolutely. standards in food production and the unintended consequences of that, or the intended consequences in some ways, or 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 in, uh, <laughs> there's a, a book out by uh, Joanne Yates and her husband, Craig, uh, oh, Craig Murphy about engineering standards and, and how that created a, a set conformity, an empire of sorts in, in how the world uh, produces screws and nuts and bolts and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's fascinating. It's a, it's a theme that I'd love to explore uh, further. I know your book doesn't cover that, but, but if we move on from the La Follette Act to World War I, only a couple of years later, how does the war transform the labor movement? And how does it, I mean, I think you describe it really as a, a high watermark for the sailors' efforts to, to gain sort of more, I suppose, recognition as domestic workers, not just these sort of foreign workers, even if they are Americans themselves. Does the war change everything? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. The war really does change everything. And of course, you know, the sort of standard way to look at the war in terms of labor is it's kind of a disaster for labor um, toward the end. I mean, a lot of the laws that are are sort of passed to, um, you know, theoretically fight sedition are used by, I mean, the Bureau of Investigation, which of course becomes the FBI and Hoover to suppress the labor movement. Um, but it also provides an opportunity, right? It creates these kind of corporate state structures um, that at least initially make it seem like labor has a seat at the table. And the sailors unions sort of jump at this. So one of the things the sailors unions are doing, and it's kind of one of the larger arguments I make in the book, is that if you look at what sailors are um, relative to um, imperialism or the growth of empires from the 17th century onward, they are not that different or at least as important as soldiers in the military, right? That they are, they're in this sort of hierarchically rigid regime. Um, they're not exactly free. They're not quite as unfree as say um, soldiers, but they're not as free as uh, workers that work um, within a kind of domestic labor context. And so a lot of what Ferusith and the sailors unions are pushing for is to transform sailors from sort of objects and instruments of empire to agents of empire. And that's sort of the argument that they make. And one of their arguments against using Chinese sailors, and you know, La Follette himself echoes this in the lead up to the La Follette Act, is that if you only crew your merchant marine with foreign workers, and even worse from the sailor's point of view, foreign workers from China who are racialized, then essentially you're training the sort of navies of China and Japan, 
right? Because as we know at this particular period, most, particularly in a time of war, the reserve for sailors in the Navy come from the merchant marine. And he's building off of Alfred Thayer Mahan's, of course, great work, um, you know, the influence of sea power on history. And everybody reads that book at that time, right? Every policymaker, everybody who was sort of in the know read that book, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm reads that book, and that's part of the um, impetus behind the German naval buildup. But what's unique in Fursith's reading of it is he looks at sailors as a strategic national resource, because one of the things that Mahan argues through Fursith's reading is that without a supply of skilled sailors, you can't have a navy like the British or like the Spanish prior to the British or the Dutch in the 16th century. And he thinks the United States has to do the same thing. And this is part of his argument. I mean, at least the way he sells it to um, the United to the public and Congress, which is if we don't have a skilled supply of white native sailors, how are we ever going to have a large navy that turns us into an imperial power? And he's making this argument for 10, 15 years, and it never really works because the emphasis for the shipping industry is just cheapness, right? Let's just do it as cheap as we possibly can. But once the war hits, you get this really unique set of circumstances where all the fleets of the major maritime nations, the French, the British, and the Germans, withdraw their fleets from normal commerce. So now the United States has to make up that gap. And by 1914, 90% of all goods shipped to and from the US were on foreign flagged carriers. In some cases, they might be owned by American capital, but they're flagged in other ports. And so now there's this scramble to build an American merchant marine. So in 1914, really 1915, when you get a maritime crisis, and certainly when the US enters in 1917, Fursa basically thinks he's vindicated. And in a way he is temporarily that this idea of relying on foreign carriers flagged in foreign ports with cheap labor from other parts of the world no longer works um, in the emergency of the wartime. So now there's this huge drive, we gotta get American sailors. And they even recognize the sailors unions. In fact, they get an agreement um, in Washington in 1917 that the shipping companies will actually prioritize members of the sailors unions in their hiring. So the sailors unions go from having about I think it's like 13,000 members in 1914 to 120,000 members by the end of the war. So just massively um, balloons. And so you get kind of everything that he's been fighting for and not only in terms of numbers, but there's all of a sudden this shift in sort of the American political discourse from the executive to Congress talking about, well, now we need skilled sailors. We need quote unquote, native born American sailors or recent white immigrants. And so for a time, they actually do become these sort of white agents of empire um, operating uh, in, in the sailing trade, but it's temporary. Once the war ends, almost all these gains go away and the corporate estate structure that the sailors unions have sort of um, enmeshed themselves in can just as easily be turned against them to break the unions, which is exactly what happens in the early 1920s. Of course, and we know that story well. We also know that the first Red Scare really kind of impacts negatively upon all trade unions in the United States and internationally for that matter. Uh, but your book ends in 1924, at, at, you know, long, not long after the war, but after the war and, and a few years after the war. My first impulse was to think about the, the immigration laws, the quota system that comes in in 1924, which you do talk about. But I want to give you oppor an opportunity to say why else you want to finish it in 1924 other than that famous quota act. Well, I mean, what's interesting about 1924 is is. Uh, and I'll get to the Quota Act in a minute, um, it, it is when the sailors unions really start to fall apart, like a lot of the labor movement in the 1920s. Um, and it's, of course, it's connected to the Red Scare, because at the same time, the IWW is emerging as a kind of alternative uh, working class politics to Andrew Ferusset's more race-based, kind of very imperialistic way of thinking about um, uh, working class politics or hierarchical, right? I mean, one of the arguments I make is, you know, it's the AFL is built explicitly on a hierarchy of labor. Um, and so it's not that much of a stretch for them to start thinking about a hierarchy of, of labor in an imperial context after 1898. And so by the late 1910s, early 1920s, the IWW is emerging as an alternative um, to the Sailors Union, particularly on the West Coast. And so they're kind of squeezed from above and below. You have the shipping companies and then eventually the state and the government really putting the squeeze on them to create an open shop. Um, for the shipping companies. And then from below, um, the IWW has emerged as this alternative. And then there's also other ways as well. I mean, you actually get this sort of third way within the uh, sailors union, where you get a, a degree of industrial unionism, particularly trying to amalgamate with longshoremen, but they don't necessarily have the radical politics of the IWW. I mean, first, if is dead set against this for a couple of reasons, he hates longshoremen. 
Um, but one of the reasons he doesn't like longshoremen is the peculiar nature of the sailors' unions, which is they're all over the place. So if you amalgamated from his perspective, if you amalgamated longshoremen and sailors, well, the longshoremen are always going to outnumber the sailors in votes because the sailors could be anywhere, whereas longshoremen stay put. And so that's part of it. Um, the other thing that's happening at this particular period is that the La Follette Act is basically being deconstructed in the sense that um, they get it passed in 1915. Seven months later, in December 1915, the Commerce Department rules that, quote, pidgin English is an acceptable level of English proficiency. And that basically just rips a hole straight through the language clause. Uh, and so, so essentially shipping company executives can essentially ignore it because pidgin English is regarded as an acceptable form of English. And then of course it raises the question of, well, how do you define what proficiency in English is? Um, and this becomes a, a major question. And there actually is voices within the sailors union who anticipate this in 1914 saying, this is gonna be really complicated. So by the time we get to the 1920s, all of these forces are at play. Now where it connects to the 1924 Immigration Act, which is, because of that commerce decision in 1915, because of that Supreme Court decision in 1917, which I alluded to earlier, which defines ships as not operating in the foreign, or in uh, basically they're not part of the United States and therefore not subject to the constitution and laws of the United States. And also that mariners are not laborers. It, it sort of affirms the exceptionality of a maritime uh, laborer. But there's also decisions that legalize the reshipment of Chinese crews within the American ports. So prior to the late 19 teens, one of the victories that the sailors unions did have was that let's say you have a ship coming to the United States and it's got a Chinese crew, right? They are not allowed to get off the ship, go before a shipping commissioner and then be reshipped on another ship. That would be a violation of the Chinese Exclusion Act and the alien contract labor law. And they get this successfully done in the 1890s. But by the end of the first world war, it gets reversed. And basically the combination of the Supreme Court and the Department of Commerce say, no, you can do that now. So part of my argument is that firmly establishes the line between nation and empire at the water's edge of the continental United States. Now, the way Furseth and the Sailors Union try to adapt to this, there's two potential ways forward. One of them is something that happens on the East Coast. Um, I think it's a, a gentleman named Bill Yak in, in, in uh, Honolulu and, um, I forget the guy's first name, but also uh, a member of the Sailors Union, Alina, they try to organize an Oriental Seafarers Union. Um, and of course, it, it doesn't work because the sailors won't recognize it. And the argument of these organizers, it's, it's tacitly supported by the East Coast branch, but not the West Coast branch, which again gets at that tension. And their argument is, well, if they're going to use Chinese workers on ships, the only logical thing to do is organize Chinese workers. And they actually say the shipping companies can no longer use Chinese workers as pawns against this. But of course, Furset doesn't go along with this for a couple of reasons. One, his prejudice. And of course, Du Bois has written a lot about, you know, what, say, black workers could have taught white workers about resistance, but prejudice prevented them from it. It's the same thing in the context of the Sailors Union, but with Chinese workers. But also, um, the argument he's been making about building up a merchant marine is explicitly race-based. So even if he wanted to, he can't go in that direction because he's boxed himself in, basically saying white workers are these sort of, you know, white sailors are the kind of manly sailors that are going to help spread the American empire in a lot of ways. So he can't go that direction. So what he tries to do is he tries to use the 1924 Immigration Act to get what he wants. And of course, we know what the 1924 Immigration Act does. It consolidates all the kind of restrictionist laws from 1882 onward. But if you also look at the act, it also defines what is and what is not the United States. For example, it defines Hawaii as moving toward the domestic realm, but not the Philippines, right? Um, and it also affirms the fact that the ship is not a part of the domestic realm. Now that's what the law ends up being, but during the hearings, Ferusith testifies and he tries to get a clause inserted into the 1924 Immigration Act that says, basically to plug the gap, the holes that were ripped open in the La Follette Act to say, if we're going to ban these people from coming to the United States, why not ban them from even working on American ships, right? So he tries to get a, a sort of clause inserted into the act that would say, okay, if a ship, if an American flag or any ship bound from the United States is coming to the United States, only people eligible for American citizenship should legally be allowed to work on that ship. And of course, the 1924 Immigration Act defines who is eligible for American citizenship. And of course, it does not include basically anyone from Asia, right? And so that's where that fits in. I want to see if you can give me a little sort of update. We, 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 we alluded to this sort of present earlier on, but I want to give you an opportunity to, to kind of 
finish the story because one of the things the podcast aims to do is to to bring the the present and the past together a small bit even though we can't always do that but but where does this story go for the sailors unions and for the the industry itself how does it how does it change from 1924 to the present day where are we at so I would argue that basically what happens is that it, 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 there is change. I mean, there's certainly a lot of change in the 1950s, which I can get into. But basically, the idea that the sailing trade is part of a foreign imperial realm does not change um, from there. I mean, that's basically what we're in now. And if you look at what the shipping industry is, and if you kind of fast forward a little bit, the unions basically fall apart in the 1920s. Um, and you get this open shop shipping industry. They rebuild themselves in the 1930s, like a lot of unions rebuild themselves in the 1930s. First, it is dead by 1937. Of course, when World War II happens, you get a similar effect that the First World War had um, on the shipping industry, and, and in even obviously bigger sense, because World War II is on a much larger scale. The United States is much more involved. And of course, it's a two-front war. So sailors working on the Pacific get a lot more benefits um, from the Second World War than, say, they do from the First World War. But what emerges after the First World War is even though, you know, I mean, you know, there's lots written about this in the late 40s and early 50s, how, you know, organized labor, you know, the kind of Treaty of Detroit, Detroit 1951, the organization of the auto workers, the kind of emergence of corporate welfare and the sort of incorporation of the white working classes into the middle class in the early 50s. This is happening, though, at the same time, you're getting the emergence of the flag of convenience system. Now, in some ways, it's rooted in the 1920s. Um, but it really takes off in the 1950s. And the challenge after the 1950s, which if you want to compare it to what happens in the early 20th century, the early 20th century, the challenge is the industrialization of the merchant marine, right? The fact that you go from sailing to steamships, which means you need, quote unquote, less skilled workers. I mean, the Sailors Union would dispute that. But of course, in the 1950s, you get containerization, uh, which affects not just sailors, but longshoremen, right? The amount of longshoremen that actually are needed to operate a port today is negligible relative to 100 years ago. And if you look at some ports, particularly Shanghai and Rotterdam, I mean, Rotterdam has, in some cases, completely automated systems. You have um, trucks that move containers with, that are driverless and have been for quite some time. And so you, you fast forward uh, to the early 20th century, and that's kind of the system we have now, which on the one hand causes you know, the price of global trade to just plunge with containerization and standardization. But if you look at who makes up the world's merchant marine, right? it's still people from the former colonized world, right? Um, and if you look at, I think it, by the early 21st century, if you look at, I forget the book, I think it's called uh, Nathan Lilly's book. I mean, he talks about how, and I think it, it's probably different now, but in the early 21st century, the countries that had the world's largest merchant fleets were Liberia and Panama. Um, and, and what's interesting, of course, about Liberia and Panama is their connection to the United States, right? Panama Canal, obviously, and Liberia being um, founded by, you know, ex-American slaves before the Civil War, that these two countries possessed the world's largest merchant fleets because they basically took what shipping companies were trying to do in the early 20th century and have done it much more successfully, which is you register your ship not in England, which is what most American companies did in the early 20th century, but you flag it in Panama or Liberia or anywhere like that, where you can take advantage of, I say, a weak government, um, a government that could be potentially corruptible, that has weak labor standards, and in many ways has been part of an American imperium for most of the, uh, most of the 20th century. Um, and then, of course, the other sort of thing that's changed it is the merchant fleet of China, um, which is, of course, probably the largest merchant fleet in the world now. It's probably surpassed Panama or Liberia, although I'd have to check on that. So that's kind of where we are now. And in many ways, the shipping industry is indicative of what happens to, you know, manufacturing capital in the United States post 1970s, really post 1950s, but in the 1970s, it really takes off. And what's interesting as well, if we want to connect it to um, part of the argument I make in the book is that the way workers see imperial expansion on the Pacific is not this frontier of opportunity, but the integration of different and uneven labor markets and labor systems, particularly integrating the labor markets of East Asia with the American West Coast or the labor markets of the Pacific. And what's interesting is when we think of the role that China plays in the American imagination or American imperialism, right? We know that they're talking about a China market even before the Civil War, but of course it takes off. Um, in the 1890s, and you know Thomas McCormick talked about this in the 1960s, um, and it's thought of as this market for manufactured goods, which of course to a certain extent it is. And yet, when we look at the, what China serves um, American capital, what it really serves is a labor market more so than anything. 
Um, so again, the shipping industry a hundred years ago is kind of predictive of where broader American industry is in the early 20th century. Now, obviously this is changing now given what's happened in China um, post pandemic. And, it, and what you could get is because of the reemergence of industrial policy and sort of the restructuring of global trade, I mean, is that you might get a lighter version of what happens during World War I, right? That if you're moving into a period of an emergency, we're not obviously in a state of war or anything, but as the Cold War or the potential Cold War between the United States and China sort of um, unfolds in the next couple of decades, does that create an opportunity um, in the United States or does it restructure the way that labor is done? It's probably not gonna bring, as we know, all the jobs back to the United States. More likely they're gonna end up in places like Vietnam, uh, Mexico, um, the Philippines, and these places. Um, but it's, it's probably not a coincidence that you're seeing um, gains being made at the same time that, like in the early 20th century, the way the sailors saw the export of jobs through the prism of national sovereignty, I mean, that's been something that has been the case um, for the last 20 years, certainly since Trump came on the scene in 2015 and 2016. And the key thing that workers have to learn from this, and, and most of you know unions know this, is that you have to be very careful about your defensive actions within your own national jurisdiction because it can boomerang back on them. And that's exactly what happened to the sailors. You know, the irony, of course, is that in excluding Chinese sailors, they're actually complicit in the segmentation of the global labor force, right? They're actually helping it. And so that's a key problem as well, that because they're excluding them, they're making sure that there is an alternative labor source. And that's what the organizers of the Oriental Seafarers Union understood in 1917, 1918, 1919. And that's something that organized labor does have to get right. Um, if there is this new emergency that's emerging, not quite like World War I, um, where say things like manufacturing jobs are viewed through the prism of national sovereignty, there's an opportunity to rebuild the labor movement um, from a much more egalitarian place than it was say hundred years ago. Well, if I ever heard a reason why research, historical research is important, I just heard it right there. I mean, that is a perfect way to end this story, link everything up to the, the present. Uh, Will, congratulations. This is a wonderful book, incredibly researched. It's in a great book series. I know that people that read about empire, about this period are going to read it, but just going on what you said there, there's a good reason why people that aren't interested in the past should pick up this book and read it because it has real implications for the present and how we how we you know trade today, how we work today, uh, and 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 how we conceive others and uh, and ourselves and identity generally. So uh, thanks very much for joining the show and thanks for some wonderful answers. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.